Welcome to the Learn Stage Lighting Podcast. This is the show where newcomers and professionals alike come to learn more about stage lighting. And now your host, David Henry. Hey friend, how are you today? I'm excited to have the podcast. I really am. Usually I don't do these after lunch in the afternoon, so I'm kind of in this like low part of my day, you know, where it's after lunch, you feel the, the blood sugar a little bit low, and uh, I've got a bunch of LEDs doing a rainbow chase behind me too that I'm testing, so all of this is making me in an interesting mood. But we are here today, excited to be here, and if you're new here, check out learnstagelighting.com slash quiz. It is where I just want to send you a free guide. So why is it called quiz? Well, I want you to ask a couple, I want to ask you rather, a couple quick questions about your lighting and what you're intending to do so that I can send you a guide that matches the type of lighting that you're working with. So check it out, learnstagelighting.com slash quiz. So today's going to be a Q&A segment. A lot of you guys are familiar with these. We do a fair, a good lot of them because, well, I get a lot of questions in. And if you're looking for quick answers to questions, um, this is not your avenue, right? You guys might know that, especially if you're listeners, if you listened a lot, you can leave questions for me here at learnstagelighting.com slash contact. But if you're looking for quicker answers to questions and or you're looking for more uh, in-depth answers and personalized help as you work with lighting, then check out Learn Stage Lighting Labs. You can check it out at learnstagelighting.com slash labs. And this is where not only do I give you personalized feedback on your lighting, not only do I help you uh, with the things that you need help with in lighting, but also... Also, also, I um, we have access, or you get access, rather, to a whole library of helpful videos so that you can learn the best ways to use lighting. Okay, and it's all it's all there. It's all included for one really great price, um, and I, I'd recommend you check it out if you want a answer quickly. Now, lighting news. I don't always do lighting news. A lot of you guys know this, but I was just reading the latest article of PLSN, the projection lighting staging news magazine and i've got a couple tidbits from it uh, to talk about first thing i've got here is um as i as i look through this month's magazine this is just an overarching theme there are a lot of people using lasers nowadays and i'm, I'm really excited to, to be letting you guys know that i'm going to be working uh with lasers here in the future and in implementing it uh, and including it first in learning stage lighting labs but then also talking about it here on the show and hopefully Hopefully trying to nail this down exactly, but hopefully um, getting an interview with one of the owners and a longtime laserist, uh, one of the owners of a laser company and a laserist who, who uses lasers on live shows so we can talk about, hey, how do you use lasers? Because when I look through this magazine, like I just flipped to another page, literally half the acts that are in arenas these days probably are using lasers. It's it's never actually been easier to get started. And you might be saying to yourself, well, okay, David, well, that's great that, you know, the acts in the large scale arena shows are using lasers, but I'm just a guy with a guitar and a band at a bar, right? How does this apply to me? You know, I only have two lights or four lights or something. Well, you, you might be surprised because the barrier to entry for lasers, and I've been watching them for a long time, both as a lighting designer and now teaching people, um, and it's always been hard with lasers to get into them because there's there's a fair amount of red tape from our government, from the FDA, actually, who 
um, make sure everybody's using lasers safely. And so it's it's been hard to get through that. But today, more than ever, there's there's easier ways to be able to get your variants and get going with lasers, even if you're just a hobbyist. And I've seen more of that um, from students inside Allard Stage Lighting Labs, more interest and more from those of you guys out here. So we're going to be covering that soon. But Another thing I was looking at, I was just looking at this article here called Choreographed Light, Branded Sterling Baker Designs, Lighting for Top Ballet Companies. Um, and this is an article about lighting for ballet. And you might be saying, David, have you gone off the deep end? Usually you're not talking about ballet here on the show. But I just, I'm kind of, I've always loved this magazine, PLSN, and they don't pay me a thing. I kind of wish they did. Um but this is a magazine that you can get for free if you're in this business or if you're a hobbyist at it. Um, even if you just play at the local bar, you fill out their survey, tell them that you use lights, and they'll send it to you. Um, because it's all paid for by the advertisers. So there's a lot of ads in it from all the big lighting companies and some little ones as well. And they have articles. What I think is cool about it is, yes, most of the articles are concert touring industry focused, Right. They're talking about the latest bands doing the big things, blah, 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 blah. But they have other stuff in here, too. They do cover theater. They do cover corporate events. Those are harder to do because companies don't always like their stuff to be showcased publicly um, that are thrown on these events. They cover ballet. And what I love, what I think is really cool about this and a good lesson and just something to think about today in whatever you're lighting, okay, whether it's you know, a rock show, a church service, a, you know, some other kind of theatrical performance, a DJ. When we use light on a stage, when we have lights, a lot of times we fall into ruts, right? I fall into ruts as a designer when I'm doing the same setup over and over again because I've been there. And I sometimes I still do the same show that's been the same for years. And I get into this rut of, well, this is how it has to look. It, this is how it looks. This is what the lights do. Blah, 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 blah. But what I like about this article about ballet, when I look at the pictures, there's only three pictures in it, but that doesn't matter. Um, I see in three pictures, three completely different looking stages. And yes, I mean, of course, this is somebody who um, is doing you know, top ballet shows. So they've got budgets, but even looking at these rigs, I mean, the lights that they have that this guy's doing ballet shows with is not near as much as like something on Broadway would have. But this guy, Brandon Sterling Baker, I don't know who he is, but he is able to make with just a few lights and just by turning different lights on and off, experimenting with different angles of light and not using a ton of lights. Um, you know, he, oh wait, there I see the number of ellipsoidals. He's got a few lights, but it's a big stage too, because ballet stages are usually huge. Um, and so you got, it takes a lot to cover. But anyways, he gives us, you know, three different looks. And I bet in a show, there's even more than that. And so one of the things I like to encourage a lot here, and I like to riff on, and this article just reminded me of, is with the same exact lights, whether you set them up different way, or if they're moving lights, you move them and you do different focuses. Or maybe, you know, you do as you go through different shows and, and, you know, go over time, you rearrange things. How do you get the most out of your lights and keep things fresh? And 
How can you turn things off, especially, to be able to make things interesting? One of the things I like about ballet is the lighting is so clean. And they can literally light just the backdrop and have everything else in shadow. That can look cool. And that applies to not only ballet, but other types of shows as well. Many other types of shows. They can go ahead and light just the stage area, just the people on stage, but not the backdrop. Sure, that's harder to do in a lot of spaces, but you can work with that. Turning off the backdrop sometimes gives you that interest on stage. It gives you a fresh and a different look. You can light the people on stage with only backlight, with only front light, with only side light. And you're able to get a lot of different looks out of just the same lighting rig that you may have gotten tired of. So that's my kind of my synopsis there. There's more articles. I haven't finished this magazine yet, but there's just, when you think about light, especially with the tools we have today, oh my goodness, we live in such a, a blessed time with lighting because most of us at least have LED lights that can change color. We can get more than one color out of a light plus also intensity. It didn't used to be that way, right? You know, it used to be literally that you had to um, turn different lights on. You had to go ahead and, you know, each light only had one color. Today, sometimes they move, they can have patterns, all that stuff. But even on the most basic level, most people these days have lights that can change colors. And we can use that not to just have all the lights on all at once, but if we turn things off, we can really create a range of, of really interesting parts of our show. So if you enjoyed that monologue, I hope you did. Um, you know, consider just turning some things off in your lighting rig and seeing how few lights. I was actually talking to a theatrical guy a while ago in the labs about this. S seeing how few lights you can make a complete look with on your stage. It might just be one or two. And watch how that fuels the rest of the show and keeps things interesting and keeps things from getting stale on your stage. All right, guys, a lot of questions today. Um, we got some actually through the comments section on learningstagelighting.com, which I have been neglecting answering the questions there. Actually, somebody emailed me. They said, hey, I'm trying to make a comment on your site and I can't. And then I realized that for some time there were accidentally two conflicting plugins um, doing spam checks and they were just not letting anything through. And so we got that all fixed up, but um, but now I've got questions in there. And so I want to answer the questions from there as well as from the uh, email. So either way, um, we'll get back to you and we'll drop you a note once we've answered your question and um, by just leaving a reply on that comment or via the email. Um, but here's the questions. Nick Roden said, quick question. Is the cam lock technique... Uh, he's talking about, uh, he was looking at an article basically that, um, that goes over the most common stage lighting connectors and, and cam locks, um, for those who aren't familiar are a connector for large amounts of power. So when you're bringing in main power into your lighting system and you've got a lot of power, you use cam locks that instead of being a super big, heavy, uh, a super and big and heavy thing. Um, of one cable it's actually five cables because we take in commercial buildings we take three phases of power um, so three hots one neutral one ground and they're all color coded so Nick's asking um, is cam lock something that would be done in a permanent install 
If not, then what would you recommend? Well, Nick, to answer your question, if it's going to be permanent, like you never tear it down, you never move it to another building, you never get rid of it, then legally, I don't think you can even use cam locks on a technical level. Cam locks are a temporary connector. However, if you need that much power in an area, you have to decide, do you want it to be permanent or not? If it is something that's going to be permanent, then you need to get an electrician to come in, install a permanent power distribution rack, and then you actually wouldn't have connectors. It would just be, you know, wire connected to wire through conduits. Um, where the cam lock comes in is in temporary setups. But with that said, most, well, any professional venue has lots of cam lock disconnects, okay? Or at least a few. And even if, you know, and I might obviously check your local codes, talk to your local electrical inspectors, blah, 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 blah. But, um, and that's actually important information. I shouldn't have said blah there. But um, cam locks are often allowable if it's something where you say, well, you know what, here in this space, most of the time, I'm going to have this distro rack or this dimmer rack connected, but not all the time, or we may move it. It may change around, etc. Oftentimes, it's allowable to, to do that within code. But you have to watch out because if something's set up there for a couple years, it never gets torn down and you have an inspector who, you know, is particular, um, they may have issues with that. So again, check with your local authorities, but if it's truly permanent, you shouldn't need connectors at all. But in so many permanent installs, there are cam locks so that you can bring in either extra stuff for a big show, tear your stuff out, you know, whatever. Um, so that's how that works. Moritz says, um, good day and thank you for the information. So moving forward in time with five gigahertz networks becoming more and more popular in use, could we expect there to still be free space to shoot our light signals around the place? Um, I think he's talking about with wireless DMX before too long. Um, so obviously, Moritz, this is a, a complex question and it doesn't have an easy answer, right? Um, five gigahertz networks have been popular for a while, okay? Um, and they've been really popular for a while. And to to be told, actually... The higher frequency you go with a network, the fr the less far that network will travel. And so it's a complicated answer. When we talk about the wireless signals in the air, and I think um, the term 5G and 5 gigahertz actually mean different things. I've done some research about that where it seems that 5G is what they're calling basically the next, um, you know, wideband network or the, the next type of network that is going to be, um, you know, sent out like cellular signal, right? But it could be also to computers and stuff directly as well. Whereas 5 gigahertz is just a frequency that a lot of modern wireless networks are running on. 2.4 gigahertz is the older one. And some interesting things actually happen. So if you compare just 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz for like networks within a building, um, or within a facility or within a city block. 5 gigahertz is a lot better, and it's better for a few reasons. One, it doesn't typically shoot as far. It doesn't penetrate walls and stuff as well. Why is this good? Because it doesn't go where it doesn't isn't supposed to be, right? Two, there's more channels. There are actually 36 channels of, of wireless within the 5 gigahertz range, and 
each of those channels is able to be used uniquely. You can use channel 34 and 35 right next to each other. They're not going to stomp on each other. 2.4 gigahertz, on the other hand, the older wireless networking um, frequency, which is what a lot of wireless DMX runs on, especially the cheap stuff, only has 12 channels. And wait for it, wait for it. Each channel actually runs over into the channels on either side. So you only get three or four truly unique channels that you can run in a given space. And so when people have trouble with wireless these days, most of the time it's in the 2.4 gigahertz space. And it's because there's just way too much activity going on. Now, unless you're downtown in like New York City or somewhere where the wireless, you know, a big city where the wireless is just nutso then you can make 2.4 gigahertz work usually. But what it takes is it takes, that means that you need you to get to get your facility's Wi-Fi or the facility that you're going to be in to be set up properly. Okay, and this is a big deal. When you don't set up Wi-Fi properly, here's what happened. Uh, about a year ago, I was at a show, brand new facility. They did this. They said, okay, we're going to have 5,000 people in this room. And so in order to do that, we're going to have, you know, I don't know, a hundred, um, basically what you might call a router or an access point. I'll have a hundred access points to give wireless to these 5,000 people. And this is just, these are rough numbers that I didn't actually count them. If you were doing that, what you should do is make sure that each access point only puts off enough power, is only broadcasting at enough power so that it can reach as far as it needs to reach to reach the people that it needs to reach, Okay. And when you've got a lot of people in a dense space, that's actually not that far and it doesn't need to be on high power. What had happened at this venue was the installer came in, they just cranked everything to max and let it go. Well, that worked until we were trying to use wireless networks for our show equipment, right? Just for, you know, getting into our consoles when we were on stage and stuff like that. And that didn't work. So we were like, whatever, we can work without that. But then... They couldn't actually open doors anywhere near close to time on opening night because they had a ticketing system that was on a separate network that used 2.4 gigahertz wireless and their ticketing system to scan the people's tickets would not work. All because the Wi-Fi, the public Wi-Fi and the private stuff in the building was installed terribly wrong. It was all putting out full power and it was just squashing everything else. And that's not the way to do things, okay? So whatever 5 gigahertz brings, and I've done my research on it, and it seems like there's a couple different frequencies it may run at, um, there's still going to be spaces to get around it. Now, here in the U.S., our biggest concern is that there's only so much free space that we can use that's not licensed to other operators. And every few years, the FCC here in the U.S. decides that they want to sell more of that space to private use um, so that they can basically have a fundraiser, you know? And so um, that's, you know, not really any fun. Um, and so, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question, but I don't think 5G internet is going to kill our ability to put other wireless frequencies in the air. However, we do have to be careful as more and more devices enter the wireless space and there's more of a need than ever for people and facilities to make sure they coordinate their wireless properly 
including bringing in experts to do it when necessary, when the project's big enough, because it's totally worth it. If you do it wrong, you'll be frustrated like that venue I told you about all the time. Anytime you try to do anything wireless, it will stink and you will hate yourself. You know you will hate your venue for not hiring the right people at the get-go. You do it right, you'll be able to get all the wireless stuff you need. Hello, they do this on Broadway, which is in the middle of New York City, um, but they, they pay professionals to come in and set up the wireless properly and make sure all the networks in the building are only broadcasting as powerfully as they need to and no more. And then they coordinate carefully to make sure that everything that needs a frequency that needs to broadcast can do so. And so I think as we move forward in time as well, more people will become interested and become knowledgeable on how to coordinate this kind of stuff. And you'll have more options to that, including myself. You know, I'm constantly um, going together and and going to, um, you know, work on that. So, you know, I'm always working harder to, to, to build my knowledge in that area as well. Awesome. Catalan says, I think that's your name. Uh, I apologize for messing up any non-American names. Uh, hello, David and everyone here. Greetings from Romania. I have a fairly strange rare problem with an old DMX console, a Kof Master Show 512 that he bought secondhand. Um, some of the faders will also change the fader of the channel next to it. Also, some functions like tilt um, doesn't work on the faders or the joystick dedicated to it. You opened up the console and saw things were loose. Um, and so as you push down on things, everything went back to mostly working properly. Um, what do I think is the problem? So ultimately, unfortunately, I've seen this happen to older consoles before. On the circuit board itself, the solder and the the little copper channels that all the power and data travels around on. With older consoles, sometimes this happens where they start to break down and things stop working. The connections get less good, they get poor, and they just stop working. And so, you know, ultimately, um, I don't know if you're going to be able to fix it. I'm not an electronics expert, but what I would say is if... It's probably a hardware problem on the console, especially considering you were able to push down and be able to get everything work, working. And so, man, I would just make the best out of what you have. Unfortunately, it's an old console. Um, it may not work. It may do what it can now for some period of time, but it may get worse as time goes on. And I wish I had better news for you, but it just kind of sounds like some hardware that's dying. And um, if you you know know someone who's maybe an electronics repair expert, who likes to repair and tinker with old electronics, have them take a look. But ultimately, um, I don't know. I don't personally have the skills to knock that out. Gary said, oh, I'm still needing help with my moving heads, lasers, park hands, and older high-end lighting systems. How do I go up wiring a system that contains up to five different types of lighting fixtures? Okay, Gary. Well, um, if they all talk DMX, whether it's three-pin or five-pin DMX, you can wire them all together. Um, just get three to five pin adapters for areas that you need them. Uh, to my knowledge, old high-end stuff doesn't have, if it's DMX, it doesn't have any weird quirks to it. Some older Martin stuff required you to have an adapter, um, a three pin adapter that reversed the phase of the DMX signal, reversed uh, the two and three wires, two and three 
to be able to make their system work. Um, apparently it was something with a patent. Either way, that's all you need. Um, you should be able to get everything working within the same system and on the same console wired up if it's all DMX. If it's not all DMX, then you need to look around and see if there's any kind of adapter or converter available. Companies like Doug Fleener Design and Pathway Connectivity make various adapters, but usually converters between different random old protocols, they usually cost more than you're probably willing to put into this rig. Like, you're probably not going to spend a thousand or two just to be able to control this thing from a DMX console. And so then what I would do is I would look out there, look on eBay, wherever else, and see what you could find on um, going ahead to see what you can find on my mind just blanked. See what you can find on just finding controllers for these things, you know? Because if the controllers have standard plugs on them or you can find the plugs, you can make cables or buy cables and you could get this stuff working with their older controllers. But ultimately, um, if it's not DMX, you're going to probably be limited in how you can control it. Awesome, guys. And I got a, a fair amount of questions here. And I'm going to stop after this next one because um, I'm losing my voice and I've got, I'm busy. So um, if you guys do want to see podcasts more often, check out the Patreon at learnstagelighting.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And of course, links will be in the show notes on that because I'd love to do this more, but right now, um, I just only have so much time to put towards this free podcast. So, hope this finds you well, David. Um, I have three questions for you, and I'm not sure the right format, but here you goes. Okay. Included in our church setup is a bunch of Chauvet and DJ Slim Pars, DMXs controlled by DMXs, and a Chauvet uh, DeFi hub. When shutting down my system, I seem to randomly have a few lights that don't fully respond, and I too often, when I dim all the way down, they won't fully turn off. I have tried, one, killing the circuit breaker to reset the fixture, uh, two, recover and replace the DeFi USB sticks, three, tried swapping out and running the fixture with a different DeFi stick. Um, I suspect now that it's either the DeFi system or a glitch in DMXs. What would you advise? Where do I start now? All right, so Sean, first thing I would do, man, is it might be some interference on your 2.4 gigahertz wireless system, as I talked about earlier in this podcast. Maybe your your Wi-Fi isn't set up well and it might be stomping on the DeFi system. Um, and so I would get that light down or get that console down, get the two of them next to each other and get a DMX cable between the light and the console and see if it responds correctly. If it doesn't with the DMX cable, then you'll be calling Chave support. Um, and telling them what's going on, and they'll walk you through troubleshooting steps um, if to see what the issue is with the fixture. If that fixes it, then you know that it's an issue with the DeFi. However, usually this is more an overall wireless uh, frequency spectrum analysis kind of thing. What I would do, and I've told other people to do this lately, is download, find an Android, okay? If you're a fruit person, an iOS, an Apple person, find an Android, because Apple doesn't let people, doesn't let third-party developers touch the Wi-Fi card or the sensors in the phone, which means that we can't have cool diagnostic tools on them. So find an Android, download the app called DMX Cat, you know, like the animal cat, DMX Cat by City Theatrical. 
And they have a device that I own, but you don't need the device to use the app for free. Without the device, you'll have an RF analyzer. You pop that up, and you will see, or find an IT person or someone who knows about this kind of stuff, you will see all 14 channels. There's 12 for Wi-Fi and two that DeFi and other things can be on, because um, I said 12 earlier. And you will see all the networks in your area and the signal strength, okay? Um, and it's going to show you where what frequencies there's really powerful networks on and what frequencies have much less powerful networks. And you can then pull out the DeFi information and look at getting it on a channel where there's not a lot of action going on. Also, get your DeFi hub as high in the air as you can, out from behind any walls, and if possible, have a line of sight where if you were standing and your head was next to the DeFi antenna, it could see physically to the fixtures with the USBs, okay? And then that hopefully should clear things up for you being able to, to make that happen. On number two, I think my video on Antech DMX's banks and presets is a top view video, blah, blah, blah. Um, I wish you wish I had an updated video that was more in depth on how to program banks and presets. Um, one thing that's missing is how I could make a master fader, like a hardware control, um, so that all lights could be brought down and back up by an untrained volunteer. Seems so basic and simple, but I haven't figured it out. Okay, so that would be something that um, there is. Is there a master in DMX? Hold on, let me double quickly remember here. Yeah, there is a level master in the bottom corner of the interface. And you can assign that to a MIDI controller if you have a MIDI controller. So you can right-click that, plus press learn, and then I'm going to click to cancel. Yes, you just heard my computer bleeping at me. Um, and you can have the master on a on a fader or a knob on a MIDI controller. Um, you also, with the intensity of all your lights, you could use the channel masking functions. And I believe... I do cover this kind of stuff inside of Learn Stage Lighting Labs, and I know you've been in there in the past, Sean, but if you do need more help with this, um, check out the labs and join us there because I, I know I can walk you through how to do this, um, but it's a little bit more in-depth in DMXs. And um, yeah, my DMXs videos are due for a redo. I'm kind of waiting right now for a software update to it because it's been a while since they've really changed anything. And so even though I know my videos aren't perfect, you know, when they're older and I can do a much better job at them today than I did, you know, four years ago. Um, I'm kind of waiting for a software update. I'm waiting to see if something happens there to redo them. Um, but Learn Stage Lighting Labs is there for anybody, yourself or anybody else who has questions. Um, and then is there a way in DMXs to rename the fixtures individually? There is not in DMXs. Again, that's something that um, you could probably suggest to them through their help and um, they would be able to tell you or you could kind of hack it by taking the fixture profiles renaming them and then having a bunch of fixture profiles that all did the same thing that all had different names based on their position and so you can actually kind of make that work um but it's again it's a little more in depth than i can go on in a podcast Whew. all right guys 30 minutes there it is um, thank you guys for hanging out today. It's been great talking. I've got some great stuff coming up on the podcast here, including interviews with some friends and uh, past students, maybe with a laser guy, trying to get that sorted out, and who knows what else. So I hope that 
you are having a great day today. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. And if you do have questions, need help, or want more in-depth advice, be sure to check out the labs at learnstagelighting.com slash labs. Thank you so much for hanging out today. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks.